Good morning. Um, glad to be here with you all, though not in not in body. Um, um, I'm grateful that we can meet in this way, though it shouldn't be the 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 normal way in which we meet for for cir- circumstances such as the these. Thankful that we can meet in this way and. Um, and being here today makes me long so much more for whenever we are able to be together, um, gather out together again. And um, I've, I've really been thinking on the words Ronnie Mack spoke here a couple weeks ago. Uh, he said uh, this last month or so has, has really brought into focus that uh, the church is not a building, it is its people. And, and during this time, I think that's been, become very evident, and we feel that so much more now. And it um, uh, should make us long for the day that uh, God's church will never be separated again, that all the children of God, brothers and sisters, will be together for eternity when God consummates his kingdom and brings all his people together. So... Um, this morning, we will be in Galatians chapter 4. If you want to turn there in your Bibles at home, Galatians chapter 4. Um, and it will be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, to begin our time this morning, I'd like to share with you an, an experience of a figure um, from uh, church history, uh, John Wesley. Uh, Wesley is, is most known as one of the founders of the, the Methodist denomination, along with his brother Charles and, and George Whitfield. Uh, during his postgraduate years at Oxford University, John led a group known as the Holy Club. It was a society formed for the purpose of study and the pursuit of a devout Christian life. He was the son of a clergyman and already a clergyman in himself at this point. He was orthodox in belief, religious in practice, upright in conduct, and, and full, full of good works. He and his friends visited inmates of prisons and workhouses. They provided slum children of the city with food, clothing, and education. They observed both Saturday and Sunday as the Sabbath. Uh, they went to church and Holy Communion. They gave alms, searched the scriptures, fasted, and prayed but they were bound in the fetters of their own religion, for they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous instead of putting their trust in Christ and him crucified. Wesley, speaking of his his conversion, when he did truly come to see his need for Christ and trust in Christ alone for his righteousness, he said, He said this, to trust in Christ and Christ only for salvation. And he was given an inward assurance that his sins had been taken away. Looking back on his pre-conversion experience, he wrote, I I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. So for our time together this morning, I'd, I'd like us to remember more often, just where God has taken us from, and more importantly, 
what he has brought us to. And I think if we do this, our relationship with him as sons and daughters through Christ will be more fully realized, more, more enjoyed and delighted in, and, and we will have a greater desire to live in more accordance with our God-given identity as children of God through Christ. Um, the main thrust of Galatians up to this point, just to give a little context, is that uh, God has given Abraham a promise that, that through his seed, through one singular offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God gave Moses a law which, which did not nullify the promise, but showed how important the promise really was. And God fulfilled the promise in the, per, in, in the person of his son, Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, through whom all the nations would be blessed. So, so those who see their sin in confronting the law might be drawn to Christ and might make the discovery of all the blessings which accompany the promise made to Abraham that they might become his heirs, heirs through faith in Christ. In our passage this morning, the apostles further explaining and expanding upon the teaching he had taken up in, in chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. There he set out to show that the natural identity of everyone is that is a, of a prisoner uh, under the warden, the harsh taskmaster of the law, and that our new identity as sons of God comes only through faith in the person and work of Jesus. And that this new identity as sons and daughters of God through Christ transcends all other ways we might identify ourselves and each other. In terms of our relationship with God, through Christ we are all one in Him. So in our passage this morning, Paul is, is going to come at this subject of identity at a slightly different angle. He's, he's, he's going to show more fully how God has taken slaves and made them His heirs his children, how a Christian has been redeemed from slavery to receive sonship. So, so read with me our passage, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. May God bless the reading of his word. And the three things I would like us to consider from our passage this morning is first, 
our old natural identity as slaves. Second, God's action in giving us new identity as sons. And third, don't turn back to the old identity as slaves. Read with me again verses one through three. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The apostles using a, an illustration here in verses one and two to really drive home and clarify what he had just said at the end of chapter three. Uh, this illustration, um, though, of an heir coming of age doesn't exactly translate smoothly into our, our Western cultural experience. It's something that to some degree has been lost in the modern world. In the Jewish culture of, of Paul's day and, and, and still today, the ceremony of the bar mitzvah marks the point in which a boy moved from childhood to manhood. And, and in that ceremony, ceremony, the father of the boy says, blessed be thou, O God, who has taken from me the responsibility for this boy. And it's at that point that, that the son became um, a, a son of the law. He was now not under the responsibility of his father, but he was, he was under the law. So the son then, then makes a statement acknowledging the new relationship which he has with God is moving him to adult maturity. And in the Greek context at this time, a Greek boy was under the jurisdiction of his parents from ages 7 to 18. And then at 18, he was then under the control of the state for two years. And then from there on into society. The Roman context, there was a, a religious festival, not really at a particular age, uh, but at a significant age in the boy's life where he donned a completely new toga. Uh, up to that point, his toga would have had like a, a purple hem on it. But at, at the particular time set, uh, he would don a toga just like his father's, marking his, his transferring from a child to an adult. Um, so Paul is using this picture of a boy coming of age to help his readers then and us, his readers now, to understand what has happened to us whenever we become Christians. He said, as long as the heir is a child, before he reaches the date of maturity set by the father, though he is the potential owner of everything by promise, he is no different than a slave. He is under guardians and managers until that date. So, so the heir during his childhood is only the owner of everything of the fathers by way of promise and guarantee, but not by experience. He doesn't experience any of the benefits of being an heir. Uh, in, in the time of his childhood, all that is the fathers is his. It is his, but until his time of maturity, his experience is not that of an heir. It is that of a slave. So the identity of a slave doesn't have to do with, with the status. In status, in standing, he is an heir, but in relation to freedom of action, he is a slave. He is a slave because being under the guardians and managers put over him, he is not free to act with the things that one day will be his. And in verse 3, Paul says this, this illustration relates to all of us. He says, in the same way, when we were children... We were, were enslaved, but we were children 
Hold on. In the same way, when we were children, were enslaved. We were slaves to the elementary principles of the world. Not only were we children, but we were children in bondage, slaves. He uses the same language in verses 8 and 9. There he says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? So he says here in in verse 3 that before receiving Christ by faith, before coming to know the one true God, or rather to be known by God, the one true God, we were all in bondage to and slaves of the elementary principles of the world. The word for principles here um, could also be translated spirits. And you might have a footnote in your Bible there on verse 3 that, that reflects that. So, so what are these elementary, elementary principles or spirits to which all of mankind um, either have been or are enslaved to? Uh, the word elements or elementary used here has, has, can have two meanings. First, it can be used in the sense of elementary things. And, and I think both of these meanings are, are kind of both and in their use here. Um, not for sure. Different con- commentators say different things. So I think there's a little bit of both in them here. Just, um, so the, the first, it can be used in the sense of elementary things, such as the letters of the alphabet, the ABCs of of preschool and kindergarten. According to this meaning, Paul would be likening the Old Testament period to the preschool education of the people of God, which was uh, completed further and fuller when, when Christ came. This, this meaning definitely fits with the, the child reaching maturity metaphor, but, but not so much with that of, of bondage or, or slavery. Uh, and so the second interpretation of, of this phrase, the elemental spirits of, of the world, of the universe, uh, lends itself more to this image of bond, bondage and slavery. In the ancient world, these elemental spirits were associated with, with either phys, phys, the physical elements, earth, wind, air, fire, um, or with the heavenly bodies, which controlled seasonal festivals um, at that time, um, the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, this interpretation fits well with 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 what's mentioned in in verse 10 about the days and months and seasons and years, their observance of those things, and and the statement to those, and the enslavement to those things that by nature are not God's in verse 8. And see, this is what what Satan, the deceiver, the father of lies, has done to the good things of God. He has taken the good creation of God, something that was intended to reflect God's eternal power, and, 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 um, and divine nature and has disguised it of something that should be worshipped. We, we see this in most every pagan religion. The Egyptians worshipped everything from the sun to frogs to, to, to birds. Uh, they even saw Pharaoh as a god himself. Uh, most of the pagan religions worshipped trees or rocks, um, the gods of Greece and Rome, the mythical gods of Greece and Rome, were little more than, than Marvel superheroes, sinful man with superpowers. <clears throat> and make no mistake, we still have these things 
today. We, we adore the lives of those who walk the red carpet and, and, and run up and down the courts more than we adore the one who lived the perfect life and gave it up for us that we might be his children. We still open up the papers today to seek out guidance from the stars. We still seek out guidance from, from the dead through spiritualists and mediums. This is still around today. Uh, from Genesis 3 to today, mankind is exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And Paul says this is not only the reality for the pagans who do not know Christ, but also for the Jews who do not know Christ. Not only has Satan taken the creation of God and used it to make slaves of us, but he has taken even the good and perfect law of God and used it to enslave us. Um, the great John Stott um, has explained this point very well. He says, quote, What Paul means is that the devil took this good thing, the law, and twisted it to his own evil purpose in order, to, in order to enslave men and women. Just as a child, just as in a child's minority, his guardian may ill-treat and even tyrannize him in ways his father never intended, so Satan has exploited God's good law in order to tyrannize men in ways God never intended. God intended the law to reveal sin and drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as a final step to his condemnation. God meant the law as a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his dupes into believing that from its fearful bondage, there is no escape. And that's why the, the apostle calls these elementary principles, because these elementary spirits are worthless and weak he says in verse 9, to deliver us from this bondage. Every form of religion that is devoid of Jesus does nothing but enslave us. And the only way for us to be liberated is to be made sons of the living God, which leads to my second point of God's giving us a new, God's action in giving us new identities as sons. Read with me verses 4 through seven from Galatians. <clears throat> but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is probably one of the most fullest and robust explanation in the scriptures of what God has accomplished through his son in the gospel. And we can split this work up into, into two sections here. We'll split it up first into the work accomplished by Christ in securing our sonship, and second, the Spirit um, assuring us of that sonship that Christ has secured. So Christ's work in securing our sonship, 
and the Spirit's work in assuring us of what Christ has secured for us. First it says, when the fullness of time has come, when the date set by the Father had been reached, he sent forth his Son. This plan of salvation was not just some sort of afterthought on the part of God. Like, well, this didn't go the way I planned, so I better, I better do something about it. <clears throat> this is the plan he had before even the world's were created. It is the fulfillment of the promise to reverse the curse in Genesis 3, the sending of the singular offspring that would be bruised by the serpent while that offspring crushed his head. Uh, next, we see that, that Christ was the very Son of God. God sent forth his Son. This points us to the full divinity of Christ. God being fully, or Christ being fully God. This is the one referred to as the Word in the beginning of the Gospel of John. The one who was with God in the beginning and was God. This is why Jesus could say to the Jews before Abraham was, I am. And that I and the Father are one. The author of Hebrews tells us that um, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Christ, upholds the universe by the power, the word of his power. Uh, then it says, he, he was born of a woman born under the law. So, so we see that God sent his son, an exact imprint of him, speaking of his divinity. Now he tells us he was born of a woman, born under the law, and this emphasizes Christ's humanity. He was born just like every man, or just like every human being is born from a woman, though in a way that no other man was born conceived by the Holy Spirit and from a virgin woman. But still the same, he was born from a woman just like every man, just like every human being. And also, just like all of mankind, he was born under the law. Because he was fully human like all men, he was obligated to keep the law like all men. But unlike all men, he kept it perfectly. Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man in order to accomplish the work needed to make us sons and daughters of God. Jesus had to be fully God for his sacrifice to be of the infinite worth needed to atone for man's sin. Only an infinite God can satisfy the wrath against sin of an infinite God. Christ's divinity is what made him the spotless, sinless lamb of God. At the same time, he had to be fully human, fully man, so he could take upon himself the penalty for sin and be an acceptable substitute for man. Bulls and goats are not acceptable substitutes for man, for they are not man. These sacrifices were offered over and over because they were never suitable substitutes. They only pointed to the one who would be the true propitiation, the true wrath-satisfying substitute for those who would trust on him for their salvation. It pointed to Christ. So Jesus the Son was sent by the Father, fully God, that he might fulfill the law 
on our behalf. He was born of a woman that he might, might be made just as we are, fully man, that he could take upon himself once for all the just punishment for our sins. And it says in verse 5 that this was all done to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It says here that all of Christ's work in his life, death, and resurrection to, was to redeem those who were under the law. This, this word redeem uh, fits well with the whole um, imagery of, of slavery also in, in ancient times uh, to redeem the redemption price um, referred to the buying back of a slave, the buying of a slave's freedom. And that is exactly what Christ has done for us on the cross. He paid the price necessary to release us from our slavery to sin and the just condemnation of the law so that we might be free to receive adoptions as sons and be his co-heirs. John, the gospel of John chapter one, verse 12 said, says, to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave, he gave the right to become children of God. To the one in my hearing today who has yet to trust on Christ for your right standing before God, and receive sonship to, to go from slave to son. It's very simple how to do that. Just turn in repentance from your sin and the old way of life. Acknowledge Christ, Christ claims as the God-man who has fulfilled the law and paid the price for your sin by confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. God will give you the rights of adopted children. The apostle goes on to tell us that the truth of adoption isn't just an idea we agree with and give intellectual assent to, but, but it, is, uh, it is a reality that is confirmed by experience. Read with me again verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And, and, and one thing this passage clearly shows us is that all three persons of the Trinity, we, we see the Godhead here, uh, are involved in our salvation. The Father set the time. The Father made the plan and sent the Son at the appointed time. The Son went uh, when sent and secured our sonship by accomplishing all the work necessary for our redemption. And now we see here that the Spirit applies the work of the Son and assures us of our sonship, of our new relationship with God. We know we are children of God because we now relate to God differently than we did before. Working through the preaching of the gospel, God has taken our hearts of stone and given us a heart of flesh by the power of his spirit within us. Before, we may not have related to, to him at all, lost in total unbelief, or, or we could have related to him like Martin Luther before his conversion. 
Luther was, was known to spend countless hours in the, in the confessional um, attempting to atone for his own sin uh, through penance. And um, he related to God as a, a slave does a harsh master, see, seeking to obey out of, out of fear of punishment. And he said he hated God because of it. <clears throat> But when the truth that the righteousness of God is received by faith was revealed to him, he no longer hated God but loved him because he knew God had first loved him in Christ. He was no longer a slave but a son. Our relationship uh, to God is nowhere more evident than in how we talk to him, too, we see from, from this passage. We can know we are children of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, simply by the fact that we cry out to God in prayer, Daddy, Father, Abba, Father. No peculiar sign, no spectacular gift, just the inward witness of the Spirit in prayer. Romans 8.16 says that the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This is our assurance that we are uh, children of God. This isn't to say that, that every true believer will be 100% assured um, of their salvation 100% of the time. <clears throat> there is still a battle being waged between the flesh and the spirit in the life of every believer. Inevitably, doubt will to some degree challenge our assurance. That's when we cry out to God like the father in Mark 9 who had the demon-possessed boy. I believe, help my unbelief. And disobedience will diminish our assurance also. But when we repent and confess our sin, we can be sure that Abba is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. For some of you who might be struggling with prayer or the assurance that you are one of God's children, I'd like to, to end this point here with a quote from the Puritan Thomas Watson. He says on, on this topic of assurance and prayer, lack of assurance shall not hinder the success of the saint's prayer. Sin lived in makes a barricade to prayer, but lack of assurance does not hinder prayer. Though it may feel like it at times, it does not hinder it. We may go to God still in a humble, trustful manner. A Christian perhaps may think because he does not see God's smiling face, because he does not feel God's countenance shining upon him, that God will not hear him. But scripture tells us different. He says, this is a mistake. For the psalmist in Psalm 31 verse 22 says, in my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight. Yet, yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. If we pour out our sighs to heaven, God will hear every groan. For the word tells us that the spirit intercedes on our behalf. And though he does not show us his face, he most certainly lends us his ear. 
So hopefully up to this point, we have, we have seen how because of sin, we are all by nature slaves, and that through the person and work of Christ, God has provided a way for us to be his adopted children. So now let us consider Paul's warning to these Galatian believers not to turn back to their former identity, their former slavery. Read with me afresh verses 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Paul says to these Galatian believers, remember your former way of life when you were ignorant of the one true God, how you were in bondage to your lusts and passions and to things that by nature are not God's. Well, you are turning back to that same bondage if you follow the teaching of these Judaizers. This is one of the main reasons Paul was writing this letter. There was this, this group of, of teachers coming in, telling these new believers in Galatia that, not, that faith in Christ wasn't enough for their salvation, that they also must, must add to that uh, adherence to the Mosaic law and circumcision in order to be um, co-heirs with Christ. And he's saying, if you turn to this, you're, you're turning back to the same old thing you were enslaved to before. It just has a, has a different, different face to it. Seeking right standing with God in any other way than through Christ alone to try to add uh, our good works to the work of Christ for our salvation is just as much a form of bondage as when you denied the one true God. Both legalism and lawlessness are turning back to our former slavery and we are prone to wonder, just as these Galatian believers were, back to one of these forms of spiritual bondage. Just like the hymn we just sung. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love for, for those things which are not God's. Our faith begins to falter. We begin to look less at and what Christ has done, and more to what we are doing or haven't done, and we become like Luther before his conversion, haunted by, have I done enough? And we forfeit the freedom of the cross. That we can't. We can't do enough. That was the whole purpose of the cross. But Christ can and did. Our love for God, for what he has done for us in Christ, begins to grow cold, and we begin to turn to our old masters in times of need. Troubles in life come along through work or whatever, you name it. And instead of turning to Abba for our help and comfort, we turn back to our old masters. We turn back to the bottle or to pills or you name it. You can put whatever our, our hearts are idle factories ready to create anything other 
than the father to turn back to. Our desires in our marriage aren't being met, so instead of seeking guidance from, from the father in his word, having our desires checked and reoriented, we turn to pornography, never truly having our desires fulfilled and causing even more strife. Um, I, I heard listening on thy word here a couple days ago is James Dobson. It was a Father's Day, and I, and I think this will be a good picture of, of the true comfort that comes from the Father. It was a Father's Day program, I guess, that they were re-airing. And he was talking about, I'm pretty sure it was Dobson, but they were talking about um, experiences they had with their fathers. And sure, a lot of us haven't had good experiences with fathers, but, but th- this was a, a very good picture of of how our Heavenly Father comforts us and, and uh, cares for us. But I guess they must have lived in a, in a one-room, a very small house growing up. And they, they would all go to bed, and, and uh, James would wake up scared in the middle of the night, and he'd call out for his dad. He'd call out, Daddy. And um, his dad would come in there and search for his hand, and um, his dad told him, once he, he, he got his little hand in his, it, it was almost instant. He could feel just his, his little hand go limp and him go back to sleep. And, and, and I think that is a beautiful picture of the comfort that, that God, our, our true heavenly father, gives us. But how prone we are not to run to that and run to everything else. So... I think in these last verses in this whole passage, the whole Bible for that matter, there there are two things uh, we can call to remembrance that will help us live more fully in our sonship and not wander back to slavery. Two things we need to remember to to remind us to run back to to the only source, the only true fount of, of comfort in this life, the one that delivers that. Two things we need to remember um, to, to fully live out our sonship and not wander back into slavery. First is remember your former way of life before God sent his spirit into your heart. Don't live in the past, but never forget it. It's a, it's a great reason for gratitude and praise to God when we remember exactly what he has delivered us from and how easy it is to, to forget that in, in all we got going on and but, and the second is to remember that our adoptions as sons and daughters through Christ never rested so much on us knowing God, but on the truth that we are known by God. What a humbling and sobering truth it is that had God not first sought me, I would never have sought him. That in love before the very foundations of the world, he predestined us for adoptions as sons and daughters through Christ. That salvation is all of God from first to last. And may may that very fact spur us on to sharing this message because it is through this message that God is drawing his sons unto himself through the preaching of this word, through the preaching of salvation through Christ. 
He is drawing his children unto himself. The, the ways we call these things to remembrance are very simple. Not always easy to be consistent in, but very simple. Word, prayer, and communing with the saints, communing with our other brothers and sisters. We must constantly go to the scriptures to be reminded of the amazing grace that, that we have received and to hear the voice of our Father. To hear the voice of Abba. This is where you hear it. We need to be consistent in prayer. Strong relationships are built on good communication. We hear from God through his word and we speak with him through prayer. And he hears us. Do not give up on meeting together. Hopefully this time, um, this last month has, has reinstilled the importance of, of meeting together. I hope we all long to be back together. I, I know being here today at this, uh, it, I'm ready to be everyone be back and, and all be in one place together, um, praising our God. Um, do not give, meet, give up meeting together, with, not only on Sundays, but, but all our days. And we need each other to encourage and build up. We also need each other to redirect when we begin to wonder. Just as much as uh, the word is a means of grace in our life and prayer, each other, we are means of grace to each other in our life. We have blind spots, so we need others to point them out to us and redirect us and, and show us that we're wondering. So to conclude this morning, uh, I'd like to give another example from a saint who has went before us, and that is John Newton. Probably familiar with his name. He is the, the author of the well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. Um, he was an only child who lost his mother at the age of seven. He went to sea at the age of 11. Could you imagine that, going out to be a sailor at 11? Later became involved in the African slave trade. He plumbed the depths of human sin and degradation. When he was 23, um, the ship he was on was in imminent danger of sinking in a, in a very bad storm. He cried out to God for mercy, and he found it. He was truly converted, and he never forgot how God had had mercy on him. He sought diligently to remember what he had previously been and what God had done for him, both what he had previously been and what God had done for him. In order to imprint it on his memory, he had written in bold letters and fastened across the wall above the mantelpiece of his study, Scripture. He had Scripture to remind him. And it was Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. He said, it says, Thou shalt remember that thou was a bondman, a slave, in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Let us pray. Father, we all like sheep have not only gone astray, but we continually go astray, Lord. We pray like the song, Come Thou Fount. Lord, we are prone to wonder, prone to leave you. And we ask, Lord, that you would seal our hearts, seal them.
or your, your courts above, Lord, that, Lord, that you would, you would give us more of a desire for you, for you are all that truly satisfies our souls, Lord. The, thing of this, the things of this world cannot. Lord, help us to remember what you have done, what you have taken us from, and more importantly, what you have given us. Through Christ, we are your children, Lord. Throughout our remaining days, help us to live as such. Not obeying because we think there's more that we need to do that Christ hasn't. But out of love because of the love you have shown us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.